Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Tonight's reading can be found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 34, and that's in page 1156 in the Church Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 34. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in its own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And uh, a very warm welcome to you. Let me add my welcome to Paul's. It's good to see you tonight. We are back in 1 Corinthians 15, page 1156 of the church bibles if you've closed them and let's pray for god's help as we turn to his word again tonight father we thank you that your son our savior sits seated on the throne of power we thank you that he will reign forever under your authority And we marvel knowing that that one was slain on our behalf, he died, was buried, and yet also was raised to life. And now that is why he sits on the highest throne. Father, please help us to understand again tonight what it means to live with that kind of Lord, the one who has been raised from life. Please fill our hearts afresh with hope and certainty about our futures, that we may live lives now which bring you great glory as we look for that wonderful day when Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen. The world is full of cause and effect relationships. Uh, There was a boy who used to come to a summer camp that I was involved in, and uh, every year without fail he would arrive and buy too many sweets from the tuck shop And then he'd eat all the sweets in one go, and then sure enough, he'd be very sick. You see, cause and effect. 
Uh, when it rains outside and we go out without a coat on, we get wet, cause and effect. When I don't have any coffee before 10 o'clock in the morning, I get a terrible headache, cause and effect. The world, our lives are full of those kinds of relationships of cause and effect. And normally we're very good at spotting the link between cause and effect. And so we take an umbrella when it rains. I drink the coffee before 10 o'clock in the morning. But tonight and over these few weeks, we're looking at a particular event in history, a world-changing event an event that has great cause in the world. And yet many of us are very bad at seeing the effect now in the present in our lives. We fail to see the link between the cause and the effect in our lives. Of course, I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And in this passage tonight, Paul is not providing us Proofs about why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus. No, he takes that as being common ground that we all agree on and stand on. No, he's trying to show us the relationship between that great event of the resurrection of Christ and our lives now in the present. He wants to show us the cause and the effect. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the negative implications. Uh, if you like, it, uh, Paul imagines taking a a Jenga piece out of the bottom of the tower called the resurrection of Jesus. He tries pulling that away from the tower to see what happens. And we saw last week that if you take away the resurrection of Jesus, the whole tower falls, the tower of our faith, our salvation, our rescue from sin. Those were the negative implications if there is no resurrection. This week, Paul looks at the positive implications. Do you see verse 20? He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It has happened. And so this week he will show us the positive outworkings of the cause and effect in our lives. What it means for us in practice now in this life. And if last week was kind of like a a Jenga tower where one piece means the whole thing topples. Well, this week it's more like a, a, a row of dominoes lined up. And when you tap over the first domino, you know what happens bang, bang, bang down the line, every single domino after the first one falls, all in order, all in succession. And Paul is saying to us tonight, if that first great event of the resurrection of Jesus happens, then there's a whole chain of events that must happen, wonderful things, good things that affect us here tonight. So what is the effect for us? What is the impact us that Christ has been raised. Well, I think Paul would have us understand. Because Christ has been raised, first, we can be certain about the future. Verse 20 again. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Growing up, we had an apple tree in the garden. And uh, every year, come harvest time, there will be a particular day when you wake up and look out into the garden, you'd see an apple lying there on the ground under the tree. And if you walked out into the garden and picked up the apple, what do you expect to see when you look up above you in the apple tree? What does that apple tell you lying on the ground? It tells you that when you look up into the apple tree, you're going to see a lot more apples. 
that one apple tree, apple on the ground is the first fruit of a wider harvest in the apple tree. It tells you more is coming. It also told me that I was going to spend a day up in the tree, um, covered in spiders and creepy crawlies, picking apples, but uh, that's a different story uh, for a different time. But you see the point. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the beginning of a great harvest, not of apples, but of people. His resurrection tells us that we too will also be resurrected, just as surely as that first apple tells us that there are more apples ready to be picked. We can be certain about the future. It sounds wonderful. Sounds tremendous, but I think Paul then anticipates a problem. The problem is this how can one person's experience affect everyone else? It doesn't happen often in life, does it? You know, if, um, if one person has a really good night's sleep, we, we don't all wake up feeling really refreshed and rested. Uh, or if one person has a really tasty, yummy meal, we don't all think, oh, great, I, I'm feeling really full now. You see, normally in life, one person's experience doesn't impact everyone. And so you can imagine someone thinking, well, it's all very good for Jesus. He's experienced the resurrection. But what does that tell me about my own personal future? What's the relationship? Well, Paul says it doesn't happen very often. But it has happened once before in history. Where one man and that man's experience and actions has impacted everyone. Look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you see it? Through one man and his actions, sin and death entered the whole world. A universal experience. And if that could happen in the case of Adam, sin and death, then Paul says it can also and will happen in the case of Jesus, the resurrection and life. We can be certain about the future. And so as incredible as it might sound or feel, the fact that Jesus has been raised means that we will also be raised. We can be utterly confident about our own personal futures, which again is wonderful. But I think Paul anticipates another problem. If it is true that Christ's resurrection ensures that we will also be resurrected, the problem then is, why hasn't it happened? If there is this relationship between cause and effect, why do we still have to say goodbye to loved ones? Why do we have to bury people? Why do we have a service here on Wednesday? Why is death still at work in the world? It sounds like one of those Wild West films with the impossible medicine man, you know, claiming to have a wonder cure, and he gathers a crowd around him, and he says, you know, drink this cure and you'll be well. And of course, he's planted a man in the audience to step forward saying, I've drunk the cure and look, I'm better. I used to be ill, but now I'm better again. And the crowd goes, wow, it works for one person. It must work for me as well. And people buy the the miracle cure and it doesn't work. Is that the way the resurrection works? It promises much. Jesus says, look, it works for me. It'll work for you. But we see people dying. 
look at verse 23. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. There is an order to how the harvest comes, to how the resurrection will be experienced. Christ is the first fruits. The full harvest has yet to be gathered. And we live now in that briefest of moments between the harvest of the first fruit and the harvest of all the fruit. In real life, it may just be a day or or a week. And, And we just live in that brief moment in history between the two great events. It may not feel brief to us as we live in this veil of tears, as we say goodbye to loved ones, as we face our own deaths and failing bodies. But God has a plan and it is on track. It is a chain reaction which will not be stopped. And when the time is right, when Christ returns, there will be a harvest. Verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you see, it's all on track. God has a a timetable for the world, a series of events. The first fruit has been collected, the resurrection of Christ. It ensures that there will be a harvest on time in the right season when Christ returns. We can be certain about the future And this is such glorious news. There are so few things in life that we can be certain of, truly certain of. We can't be certain about what exam results we'll get as we take exams in a few weeks. We can't be certain even about where we'll live in five or ten years' time. We can't be certain about our our health. We can't be certain about our jobs or our income or how well our marriages will do in 20 years' time. We can't be certain if we'll marry someone or remain single. We can be certain about so few things in life. But on this one huge central issue, we can be utterly certain that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too will be raised from the dead, just as the first fruits lead to a wider harvest. And this passage tonight should help us to go home tonight full of joy. Not because life is easy, or certain in many ways, but because there is one fact that is certain, and that fact changes everything. We can be utterly certain. But I think Paul's not finished. There are clues here in the passage about what our resurrected life will be like, clues that enrich and flesh out the picture of what we can expect when Christ returns. Two clues. Uh, The first clue comes from the the, the harvest language. That apple lying under the tree, back in my garden. When I pick up the apple and and understand it's an apple with the the shape of an apple and the the taste and smell of an apple, what do you think I expect to see when I look up at the tree? I don't expect to see bananas or oranges or pineapples. No, I expect to see more apples. There is a link between the first fruit and the rest of the harvest. So too with Jesus and our resurrection. And we've heard about how Jesus was res- resurrected in the first half of Corinthians 15. He's resurrected with a real body. 
His disciples could see his hands. They could touch and see him and he could eat and he could walk around and have conversations. He was recognizable to his followers. That is the first fruit and the harvest will be like. And this here is a clue for us of what our resurrection life will be like. We look at Jesus and his physical real body. We see the first fruits of our resurrection as well. That's the first clue. There's one more clue about what our resurrection future will be like. And the clue comes from what the risen Lord Jesus is doing now, after his resurrection. You see, he is not sitting in heaven simply playing a harp and sitting back in a hammock sipping lemonade. No, he is busy, reigning. Do you see verse 27? For he has put everything under his feet. He is busy bringing the world into order and submission, subduing all the enemies, bringing things under his feet. And that uh, little line there in verse 27 is actually ringing bells for us. If you see in the, in the footnotes in our Bibles, it's actually a quote from Psalm 8, verse 6. And in, in that psalm, uh, the psalmist describes the exalted position of humanity within all creation. As in Genesis 1, uh, God made humans to rule over his good world. And look at how Psalm 8 picks up Genesis language, uh, verse 6, and we can see it on our slide. Psalm 8 says, You made him rulers over the works of your hands. And then here's our quote. You put everything under his feet. That is a picture of humanity from Genesis. And do you see it? All flocks and herds, all the beasts of the field and birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. This is what humanity was made for. We were made to rule over everything under God in his world. And yet, we don't see Psalm 8 in practice, do we? Because as humans, we sin. We don't take our role properly. The world is uh, full of sin and suffering and broken, and it doesn't adhere to our rule. And so we don't see the world as Psalm 8 describes it, living with humans ruling over everything. And then the resurrected Lord Jesus comes along after his resurrection. And what does he do? Well, back in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that he is doing the very job we were meant to do. The Psalm 8 work. He is ruling over everything. I can still remember uh, pottery classes at school. I didn't do them for very long because I wasn't very good at pottery. I was encouraged to stop as soon as possible by my teacher. Um, but you know how it works with pottery if you ever tried it? So you pick up a lump of clay and you chuck it on the wheel and you spin it around and you make a cup. And in my case, the cup always went wrong. It didn't work. So you scrap it, you pull the clay off the wheel, you put it into a, a lump and you try again. You chuck it on the wheel and the whole thing starts again. And I think many people think that when God created the world, it's a bit like my lump of clay on the wheel. It started off with potential, but it didn't work out as he hoped it would. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 sounds great, but actually the whole world has been messed up. We don't see humans ruling over the world. The world is in rebellion, and plan A hasn't worked. And so many people think God, will, God says, well, okay, we'll try plan B, and he, and he picks up the old order, and he, he, he changes it and makes a new lump out of it, and he chucks it on, on the clay, and, and that, that new thing will be heaven. You know, after all sin is dealt with, we'll have a new plan, a plan B, and that'll be our, our new future in heaven. But, but that is not how the Bible is fitted together. 
See, there is not a plan A and a plan B in God's plan for the world. There is only one plan, plan A. And the plan that he has is a good plan. We see it established in Genesis. Humans ruling under God over the world. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us that that one plan seen in creation is still on. Still going to happen. Because God has found a way to put a man on the throne over the world. It wasn't King David. It wasn't Adam. It's not us. It is Christ. He is ruling under the Father over the world. And that is what he is doing in his resurrection. He is the first fruit. We are the harvest. And I think all this means that when we too are resurrected with Jesus, we will not be floating around in some bodiless haze of glory or we won't be sitting on the hammock sipping iced tea. No, we will be busy working. We will be busy carrying and ordering and overseeing, working with Christ under the Father, looking after not this world or this creation, but a renewed world. As the Bible says, a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be a place where there is no tears or sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no thorns or thistles, no frustrating bosses or futility in our work. It'll be the place that God always intended us to work in before sin entered the world. It'll be a place of fulfillment and of joy and of satisfaction. It won't be a boring place. And the risen Lord Jesus shows us just a glimpse of what our future is as he is busy subduing the world and showing us our eternal future. It will be brilliant. It is what we are made for. We can be certain about this future. Uh, But second, and, and much more quickly tonight, our final point. Because Christ has been raised... Second, we should be urgent about the present. You see, a firm and certain hope about the future is not meant to make us sit back now in the present and go, great, I've got it all made. I can sit back and relax now until the end comes and Christ returns. No, if we have that hope clear in our minds, it should spur us on to great endeavor in the present. Now, that's what's going on, I think, in verse 29. We can't be sure about all the details, It is a tricky verse, but it seemed that some people were taking very concrete steps now in the present because of a conviction and hope about the future. I think that is what it means when Paul says um, that people, when hearing about dead Christians, are taking steps in the present. Uh, They are being baptized for or on account of the way that Christians have died A non-Christian sees a Christian dying with hope and confidence in the future. And they say, I want to be like that. I want to have the same hope in my future. And so they are baptized. They become Christians. They join Christ because they want to have that same hope in the future. Do you see, a future hope leads to present action. It led some to be converted and baptized. What about Paul? Well, Paul says in verse 30, Uh, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? You see, Paul is extremely urgent in the present. 
He is industrious. He is facing death daily, uh, fighting wild beasts. Probably not literally, but he's probably thinking of uh, human opponents who stand in his way and who cause him great grief. Why does he think all of this is worth it? Because he has more than a human hope about the future. Paul was confident about the reality of a future resurrection. And he is clear that other people will miss out on this glorious hope unless they hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he is busy, he is urgent in the present. There is something here which is incredibly countercultural to our ears today. You see, our culture says this it says, life now, death then. Isn't that right? That's how people live their lives now. Uh, people around us, the culture says, oh, don't think about then because it's scary and it involves death and probably, probably the end. No, think about now and the present and think about life. If this life is all there is, then that's the one chance we have for happiness and joy in this life. So, so focus your endeavor and priorities on life now and don't think about the death then. Spend your time, your resources enjoying the trinkets of life or, or trying to get money to buy more trinkets in life. And why not? If death really is the end, then the one shot we have for fun and happiness is now in the present. And Paul captures this mindset perfectly in his quote from the Old Testament. He says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you see? Life now death then that is how this world operates this materialistic world but of course that is not how Christians should think because we know what happens when we die we know that death is not the final event in our lives no for Christians it should be death now life then turning the whole thing on its head You see, Paul, he is willing to live the hard life, the risky life, the uncomfortable life now. The life, if you like, of death in the present. Because he is utterly confident of his life in the future. I think we often lack urgency in telling other people about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because we just don't think that our futures are all that good. Or if you want to put it this way, we kind of hedge our bets. We sort of want to have a camp in this life, having a bit of joy in life now. And we sort of hope that in the future it'll be good as well. And we sort of do the split spiritually. We kind of hedge our bets. But Paul doesn't. He says there's only one place where we can find true and lasting life, and that's in the future. And this life now will not bring us life. And we would do well to be like Paul in our urgency, fixing our gaze fully on the really concrete and real hope of the future and not trying to find life now in the present death now life then but also I think we lack urgency when it comes to our sin if we don't have a clear hope of the future Paul's been showing us that our future is to have physical tangible recreated bodies which means God, God cares about our bodies. 
He cares about the physical, the tangible. And to devote our bodies to sin is to devote ourselves to an outdated, dying, old way of living. As one author puts it, uh, to invest in sin now is like investing in VHS video shops. It's so out of date. It's so old school. Something new is happening and one day it will burst forth in glorious fulfillment. And so Paul says, verse 33, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I don't think Paul is viewing sin here as a a list of, of do's and don'ts. Rather, I think sin here is to live a life as if there is no eternity. To live a life as if there is no hope, as if our bodies will not be raised when Christ returns. Uh, The sin is to simply build our lives around the worldly motto of life now, death then. But Paul says it is an ignorant life. It It is a resurrection denying life. And it will be hard to live a life not of sin, but of God-glorifying obedience. A life of death now, life then. It will be hard because the world around us, well, they're living life now, death then. And we'll feel it, won't we? I don't know how it is for you, but maybe some of us, as we look on Facebook and see what our friends are up to, look at their profile and their status updates and their pictures, and look at how they spend their money and their time and their holidays and their beautiful friends and their social life, and we think, they're living life now. I wish I could be like them. It'll be hard. Or if we look out the window and see our neighbor's driveway and there's another new car, or they're off once again on the next wonderful holiday. Or the people pushing for a promotion and they're making it on the career ladder because they're willing to work all night and all day. We're surrounded by people who who don't believe this. As Paul says, we're surrounded by bad company. And bad company exerts a huge force on us as we think about what we live for. And Paul says, don't be misled, don't be confused. We have a certain future and it is a glorious future. It is a future which will make sense of all the present hardships, all the present urgency and battles, gospel battles and battles against sin. And one day, I can promise it because Paul makes this point, one day as we look back, this will make sense. All of the hardship, all the battles. One day as we meet the risen Lord Jesus, we will say, It was all worth it.